This is Wessler Media. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, just wanted to take a quick second before we begin the episode and ask if you would share this episode, share this series with a friend or family member or family members if you're feeling so kind. If you're feeling really nice, why don't you give us a five-star rating? We would greatly appreciate it. All right, let's begin the fourth episode of Profiles. This is a Wessler Media production. That was a dark and stormy night. I got to start with that. <laughs> Athens definitely has a strong connection to Halloween. It's got a reputation for being haunted, for being spooky, for being paranormal. I first heard it from people that are like juniors down here. Somebody hung themselves and they did a demon ritual cursing the place. More than that, I mean, there are some things that, I don't know, I couldn't explain what, what, what's been described to me. There was a spirit that would appear named King, and he was supposed to be 14,500 years old. These hands would come out and uh, write messages. That stands out in my mind as one of the freakiest things. Many people who associate Athens with the paranormal supernatural would probably list the ridges first. It's the one thing people think is haunted the most. I mean, dead body stain on the attic of a state mental institution, hell yes. That combined with the block party makes it a real sort of Halloween town. In its beginnings, it was more of a trip fest because we were really nationally known as a school that partied. It's a wild town. That's one of the most enduring legends of that place. It's also completely true. Welcome to this episode of Profiles. I'm Vince Tornero. There aren't many places in our great state that aren't more beautiful during the autumn than southeastern Ohio, when the leaves of the rolling Appalachian hills begin changing color. In these hills, alongside the Hocking River, you will find the town of Athens, home to Ohio University, which became our state's first college when it opened its doors in 1804. But despite this historical significance, many people across our state and across our country know Athens for a different reason, a more sinister reason. They think it's haunted. If you type most haunted cities in America into Google, more often than not, Athens, Ohio makes the list. This notoriety is only amplified by the Athens Halloween Block Party, an internationally known event that hosts up to 30,000 people some years. So all of this got us wondering, something about Athens. Not is Athens really haunted, but why do people say Athens is haunted in the first place? From 19th century spiritualists who claim to be able to communicate with the dead to a haunted stain left by a deceased mental patient, we'll uncover the legends and the lore that give this town its spooky reputation. This episode contains some language and some graphic material, so continue listening if you dare. Athens definitely has a strong connection to Halloween. It's got a reputation for being haunted, for being spooky, for being paranormal. And that, I think, is uh, combined with the block party makes it a real sort of Halloween town. I'm Brian Collins, and I am the Gawande Chair in Indian Religion and Philosophy at Ohio University and the Chair of the Department of Classics and Religious Studies. I 
came to Ohio University in 2013. I've never seen or experienced anything uh, to make me think one way or another, but I am sure that it has a reputation and I've talked to many people who have had those experiences. I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy too. People come here expecting that kind of thing and they find it. I don't have firsthand knowledge of it, but I also don't think I've just been lied to a bunch of times. So uh, I'm pretty agnostic about it, but I do take seriously whatever people you know want to tell me about what happened to them and what they saw or felt. Because of the, re the reputation exists and because people believe it, then it doesn't really matter what I think, it is the case. I think some people want to believe it because it makes their world more interesting. It's a way of enriching their lives and making them feel like they're part of a more interesting thing than the world as it's, as it's conventionally explained and described. Other people have other motivations as part of their own spiritual practice. They practice some sort of neo-paganism or if they're spiritual mediums. For them, it's not a matter of uh, whether it's real or not, but it, it is real and, it, and it's how they relate to it. Some questions we'll never be able to answer, but we can answer questions about the way humans experience the world. I mean, this is actually a pretty interesting way to understand how we experience reality is by how we experience things that seem to exceed the limits of reality. Athens has its fair share of stories that seem to exceed the possibilities of reality, many of which take place either on Ohio University's campus or up at the building known as the Ridges, where the Athens Lunatic Asylum used to be. But as we researched, Athens folklore realized that these stories of the supernatural go back even further than we thought. In the mid-1800s, during the height of the spiritualist movement, a psychic medium by the name of Jonathan Coons moved to Athens and opened what he called his spirit room. People from across the country traveled to Athens to take part in Jonathan's seances. He claimed he could communicate with the dead. My name is Sharon Hatfield. I live in Athens, Ohio, and I am the author of Enchanted Ground, The Spirit Room of Jonathan Coons. Sharon Hatfield's work on this book is incredible. Uh, it's, it is a real contribution to the study of spiritualism, which is a big thing in, in the study of American religions. He was a man who moved to Athens County from Bedford, Pennsylvania in the 1830s. He was a young guy looking to establish his own family, his own home. And he moved out here in 1835 and soon found him a wife. As for why he actually chose Athens County, I think it was the availability of cheap land more than anything else. It's possible that he had a sister who had already moved out here, but we don't know for sure. He had rejected the church as a young man. He had been taught, you know, that hell was real and that people that weren't chosen by God were going to burn up in hell. This became the subject of his nightmares. He did tend to suffer from depression, and he went through a period of insomnia because he was afraid if he went to sleep, he would have these night terrors that would come on him. And he had a lot of questions about religion, so he sort of walked away from it, maybe in his late teens. He was just sort of a questing type of individual. 
A little earlier in the 19th century, they had the Second Great Awakening in New York State. And a lot of religions came out of that period of time, including the Mormons, lots of evangelical Christians, the Millerites, who believed the end of time was coming in the 1840s. So a lot of different new religions were springing up at that time. And just with the westward movement of settlers, a lot of that came out to Ohio. And that's how spiritualism also came to Ohio. Spiritualism was, at the time of Jonathan Coons, a huge worldwide phenomenon. Scholars now think that about half of all Americans at that time had some contact with spiritualism. Its main architect of its teaching was Emanuel Swedenborg, who was an 18th century uh, mystic. And you know his big teaching was that there was no hell, that the Christian teaching of hell was an illusion. And you know this is a sort of a hopeful idea. I mean, hell was already in decline. It didn't make sense to people after the Enlightenment that a benevolent God would send people to eternal damnation for something that they did. And so spiritualism kind of comes in with a new, a new sort of look at the afterlife. It is in some sense a kind of an antidote to a fire and brimstone thing, but there was a whole lot of different ideas going around. It was really not so dogmatic. You didn't have to join a church. You didn't have to sign on to any kind of dogma. It was much more do your own thing. And It's not God determining that you're part of the elect or you're part of the people going to hell. You have some control over it in how you live your life. And so it was a more optimistic way to look at things. And I think that really appealed to him. And so when spiritualism started as a movement in 1848, he read about it in the papers. And he was very intrigued by this. The spiritualist movement of the 19th century began to take prominence when three sisters claimed they made contact with spirits. It started in New York in 1848 with uh, the Fox sisters in Hydesville. He couldn't afford to go up to New York State where spiritualism originally started. He had to wait for it to come this way. And so finally, in 1852, he found someone locally who was having a seance. He started out as a skeptic and as sort of an atheist. Coons went to the seance thinking he would expose it as a fraud. Instead, the lady who's the medium says, you're going to be a medium too, and you have all these talents that you don't even realize you have. He went home and tried uh, meditating. For a while, nothing would happen, nothing would come to him. But then finally he started doing this automatic writing where he would just sit with a pen and kind of call in his unconscious mind, we would say, but he he would call it the spirits, and it would move his hand. And so that's sort of how he got started, um, getting in touch with the spirits or the other world or whatever you want to call it. Jonathan Coons first started having seances in the evening. He built a one-room log cabin with a peaked roof six feet away from his home. He had benches on one end that were kind of elevated. On the other side of the room, he had the long table that he called the battery, and he rigged up different wires and a wooden frame and bells and little pieces of copper, and he claimed that this was a battery that would help produce some type of electricity that would help the spirits manifest. 
Everything was conducted in the dark. He always maintained that the spirits required the darkness in order to manifest. So once everyone was seated, he would sit with his son, Nim, and his wife, Abigail. Then he would blow out the candle, and then there would be this tremendous crash, like a a drum or a cannon going off, and that would startle everyone. And then he would start playing his fiddle. And he would tell the people, now the spirits are coming in. They're coming in, they're assembling. They would have a musical part of the program, and then there was a spirit that would appear named King. He was sort of like Coons' alter ego in a way, and he was supposed to be 14,500 years old. It was shocking and scandalous, because that would have been before Adam. He called himself a pre-Adamite spirit. And he would speak through the trumpet. It wasn't a trumpet with valves. It was a, more like a dinner horn. And Coons did have some pretty interesting special effects that I can't completely understand myself. Allegedly, the uh, horn would levitate and then a voice would speak through it. He did have lights that would float around the room, different little globe-like structures that would kind of blink on and blink out. People would get caps snatched off their heads, things like that. But the the most spectacular was the disembodied hands. These hands would come out and uh, write messages to the audience. And they would write it at a super speed. They felt like the messages were from their relatives who had passed on. People went there because he put on a good show. I mean, spiritualism was partly about connecting with the dead, but also there was no television, there were no movies. It was a heck of a way to spend an evening or an afternoon in entertainment. It came popular around the same time stage magic did for the same reasons. People wanted to be amazed at something. So there are people who want to connect with another world and others who just want to see something out of the ordinary. As Jonathan Coons continued to perform his seances, his reputation began to grow. It was attracting the attention of spiritualist journals throughout the country. He loved the press. He was very, very astute at presenting himself to the press. He wrote lots of letters to the paper. He was able to get the press on his side at least the first few years. But as time went on, skeptics began questioning the authenticity of Coons and his seances, most notably a reverend named J.H. Fowler. Fowler was a minister who had been trained at Harvard. He was on a lecture circuit all through the Midwest in 1855, and he decided he needed to come by the Coons farm and check it out and see if this was for real or not. He was going to investigate, and he was going to publish people that he thought were the real deal, and he was going to expose people that he thought were fakes. So he comes briefly to the farm in March of 1855, but he doesn't get a good feeling about it. He comes back 
a few months later, and he, his suspicions grow. Coons, though, has a great deal of charm and persuasion, and so he kind of feels like he's one fowler over and that things are going to be okay. But as soon as Fowler leaves the property and goes back home to New England, all of his doubts come back with a vengeance. And he uh, runs a front-page expose in the New England Spiritualist, telling about his visit and how he feels that Coons is a fraud. Eventually, Jonathan Coons shut down his spirit room. After he shut down the spirit room, he and Nim went on the road. They became roving mediums. Sometimes they had a, a, one of the daughters would go with them. When Jonathan Coons was up in Cleveland, he was at the home of this editor of the spiritual universe. While he's there, he's giving some seances in their living room or parlor, and uh, the spirit is supposed to be moving something up to the ceiling, but a match accidentally lights up, and there's the daughter standing up holding something in her hand. This caused another expose in addition to the one Fowler did. After a while, basically the reason that he quit doing it was because partly his family rebelled against him. They just said, uh, we're not doing this anymore. That doesn't actually mean that nobody had any psychic ability. That's what people take it to mean. I don't think the fact that a lot of mediumship is entertainment says anything about whether it's possible the mediums do what they say they do at some point. If you think about how a psychic medium is supposed to work, it's not really on command. So maybe there's someone who had the experience of being in touch with a spirit four or five times in their life, but was asked to do it again and again. You know, it's sort of like the the athlete who takes steroids. They could probably do it without, but they probably couldn't do it every time. And so the cheating comes in there. And, you know, this is, this is an argument that people have made. Um, you know, there's no way to prove or disprove it. I do believe that the Coons family did help engineer some of these special effects. Even if you believe that the physical manifestations were not from the spirits, there's also this element of extrasensory perception. Coons often knew the names of people who went there under fake names. It was quite astonishing. People would write and say that, yeah, he knew my name. He told me my name and where I was from. One critic has said, well, he just probably bribed the people who were running the transportation, and he probably just got the information. Another really interesting thing uh, was he um, passed this on to his family. At least two more generations, they were spiritualists. So really, if you think about, well, if he was just doing this as performance art, why would they keep doing this? So it's kind of, he's a very fascinating and complicated person. He was teaching people religion or philosophy through this. So he was not just a spiritualist medium. He also, because he was writing down the words he got from King, a sort of a prophet. And, you know, this was a time when prophets were becoming huge. He did get a lot of satisfaction out of people asking him for spiritual guidance. He didn't get rich off of it, as he certainly could have. He told his friend in Amesville 
that if he charged, people would think he was in it for the money. And he claimed he was in it to make people realize that the soul was immortal and to bring them joy. So he's kind of idealistic in that way. They believed that they were bringing a very positive message of hope for people, and they wanted this to help sell the idea. So that's kind of what I believe. But I have had people tell me that they believe that area around Mount Nebo is sort of different. We know that Mount Nebo was located on the Coons farm. Jonathan Coons believed that there was something in the landscape that actually facilitated spiritual connections. Some people believe that that area up there around Mount Nebo was sacred to the Shawnee Indians. If that's really true, then this whole idea of Coons and the haunted uh, things goes back even further. The thing about Mount Nebo is, I guess it was in the 80s, uh, when the artist Ethelred Eldridge built his Church of William Blake there. It was at the same spot or is it somewhere near Mount Nebo? And that's a, his visionary sort of mystical church that also burned down. The Coons Farm had burned down in almost the same place. So that sort of reactivated the tradition. Despite the important role he played in the spiritualist movement, Jonathan Coons' spirit room remained largely forgotten until Sharon Hatfield's book. I don't think it would be a top contender for why people think Athens is haunted. They'd probably list the ridges first. The Ridges, a building formerly known as the Athens Lunatic Asylum. Well, my first name is George. My surname is Eberts, and I arrived here in 1978. Before becoming an astronomy professor at Ohio University, George worked at the institution and is now seen as one of the experts on the history of the asylum. Well, there was a movement in America at the time to get mentally ill people out of basements and sheds and jails and poorhouses where they had been for a couple hundred years in America and thousands of years in elsewhere in the world. Let's afford our brothers and sisters decent living conditions and a lifestyle that is as close as possible to normal. Normal in those days meant family farm and you grow your own food. So all throughout the country, they began to establish lunatic asylums. So there was just a process in mid-1800s of lunatic asylums popping up here and there. They were generally built on the Kirkbride plan. George is referring to Thomas Story Kirkbride, a physician and mental health advocate. Kirkbride from next door in Pennsylvania. He be eventually became the founder of the American Psychiatric Association. And the guy had like 110 little reasons to build your building this way. And he laid them out uh, in a, a pamphlet at the time. It has this Victorian castle architecture that looks like the classical representation of a haunted house. So what you have is a rectangular building. Ours has towers on the front. From each side, wings go out, then they drop back, then they go out again, then they drop back, then they go out a third time. Three offset wings on each side of the building. This is the Kirkbride plan, and uh, it played out in about 70, or uh, a little more than 70 facilities nationwide around the grounds. They're going to be beautifully landscaped, and um, Athens was said to be the most beautiful landscape facility of its kind. That building, building... 1868 and opened for business in 1874. Most of the time, uh, people seemed to be okay with, with the place, that it was, they thought that it was providing good, kind, healthy care. 
darker times began to set in fairly early. The uh, census never went down. Year after year after year, starting in the 1870s, there's more patients every year. The place eventually grew to a capacity of just shy of 2,000 patients. The place was built for 570. They just had people, you know, in two or three beds in a single bedroom for many years. Over time in Athens, as elsewhere, there were abuses and less desirable circumstances. The big shots would come and go through the main front door under the towers. That's where the superintendent's office was upstairs there. So if you got messy, slightly out of control patients, you don't want them around. You move them way out the hallway to the back wards. So back wards evolved as a very unsanitary, unsupervised part of the institution. By the 1920s or 30s or so, war wound research had revealed the fact that if someone goes into physiological shock, blood pressure, rapid, shallow breathing, probably unconscious. And when somebody was mentally ill and they went into shock like that, when they came out of shock, they seemed to be thinking more clearly. So the question became, how do we put people into physiological shock and bring them back for mental health therapeutic reasons? You can do that a number of ways. You can overdose on insulin. You have insulin shock. You have hot water, cold water back and forth. They call that hydrotherapy. Easiest and cheapest, of course, is electricity. They had these boxes that were exactly 12 inches square, open the top, knobs and dials, currents and amps, and you put a headset type thing on and push the button and an electric charge. Uh, it causes a convulsion. The official name of this is electroconvulsive therapy or ECT. The patient has a, has a seizure and then they're in kind of la-la land for another 10 minutes or so. When they wake up, you go coach them back, you know, what day is it and all that kind of stuff. A course of ECT runs about uh, 12 times. They're like potato chips. You can't have just one. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Shock therapy is still used today, and it's completely successful at what it does. It takes people that are pathologically depressed and lifts them back up to normal again. What it does not do is cure schizophrenia or most other mental diseases. So uh, there's that, and the, the worst thing, and we're getting into now something called the snake pit era. The snake pit era, you've got not only electric shock treatments, but you've got lobotomies. And Athens was a big stop on the lobotomist circuit. This guy that invented the transorbital lobotomy 
Walter Freeman. He wanted to be the Apostle Paul of the lobotomy religion. He wanted to go places, teach people, and get practicing colonies of lobotomies going on in state hospitals. You're cutting a piece of the brain called the corpus callosum that communicates between different parts of the brain. Freeman decided to experiment on corpses, so he figured out a way to move your eyeball over and then punch through the bone in back of it and stick instruments in there and slice up the corpus callosum, pull out, patch it up, and the whole thing only took about 15 minutes. We have solid evidence of 34 lobotomies in one day. He is known to have done 44 one day. The only worst thing I can tell you is that there was no anesthesia, but they put you out with an electric shock that causes a convulsion and then 10 or 15 minutes of unconsciousness. That's when they hurried up and did the lobotomy. So they didn't waste any good drugs on you. They shocked you out of consciousness, did the lobotomy real quick, and then you would wake up naturally from the one-shot ECT. And the pictures, as you may have seen, people are standing around, there is no sterile field, and there are no white gowns or anything. People are just standing there looking down at the table and got instruments sticking up out of the eye of the patient. Procedures such as this happen in asylums across the country, not just in Athens. People then associate these gruesome and traumatic stories with the paranormal. There's been rumors about asylums in general as being places of torment. So there's the old model of bedlam from England, of people basically just being locked away in the dark. Geraldo Rivera got his name by doing an expose of a, what he saw as a corrupt asylum. And so haunted asylums and asylums like tormented people there became a sort of a pop culture theme. And I think that's just an association that gets sort of, I think, unfairly uh, sort of associated with the riches. Uh, but in fact, you know, there was a sort of revolution in psychiatric care and the, the, the uh, Athens Insane Asylum was part of it, uh, where people were, it was fresh air and farming and exercise and community was, and it did help people. They had schedules, they woke up, you know, they did chores. They were productive. And so it, it wasn't that people were tied to their beds or locked in dark rooms, but that is the image people have of them. The most famous story, however, that makes people associate the ridges with being haunted involves a stain that was left by a deceased patient. So that's one of the most enduring legends of that place. It's also completely true. Uh, Margaret was a uh, relatively friendly old gal. She's in her, I don't know, mid to late 60s. She's hanging around the stairwell a lot, and he, she would talk to the staff. How's your weekend? Did you get to visit with your granddaughter? You know, stuff like that. She doesn't show up for dinner on November 30th, 1978. She uh, immediately triggers a code brown where everybody stops what they're doing and they search around closets, bathrooms, anywhere a patient could be. Find the missing patient. And the code brown is unsuccessful. 
So then after dinner, they have a whole nine yards police-organized grid search. And the grid search goes through the basement and attic, as well as some of the outbuildings. No sign of Margaret. The next day, after a bunch of more staff arrive, they can do a better grid search. They got twice or three times more people now. So they can go through places like the basement and the attic slowly, calling her name and looking different places. They still don't find any trace of her. They wrote her off as having probably eloped, which is what they called it when you just went into town and didn't come back. In early February, they smelled the, the smell coming down the stairs on a warmish day, and they get, oh God, it's probably that woman that went missing last fall. There was, there's three floors all the way out the Kirkbride wings. All the way out on the end, there's a little fourth floor. It's reachable by the attic, which at the time went from one side of the Kirkbride all the way to the other. And uh, that's where they found the body. They go up and they see her laying there on her back. And she had folded up her clothes and, and neatly stacked them on the windowsill as if to invite faster hypothermia. Why didn't she respond to people searching for her? Nobody knows that. She had to be there because it was locked and unlocked before and after they went in there. And they're calling her name. So she seems to have decided not to go back. We don't know exactly why. Could be as simple as she was afraid to get in trouble. But it might have been that she just tired of playing the game and sort of, in my mind, flipped them off and hid. So when they locked the door that time, it was locked for good. And she was stuck up there. Margaret's body was eventually removed from the facility, but a mysterious stain in the shape of her body appeared as the custodial staff attempted to clean the scene. 20 years or so later, the Ohio University Chemistry Department does a forensic analysis of the whole scene. They start off by stuff up painfully obvious and banal, like, yes, they established that that is human tissue on the floor. In other words, it wasn't a frat joke that got carried away. Chemists said that at the time, big... Places like state institutions, they had this stuff on the maintenance contract called Blu-ray. And Blu-ray was the roughest and toughest cleanup juice you could get. It was like 20% phosphoric acid just to start with. But it was supposed to be for times like this. The klutzy custodial staff got the Blu-ray and they dumped it all over where the body had laid and they begin the scrub brush. And as they scrub brushed it, the area where the Blu-ray had landed and spread out, starts turning black. And in the middle, there's the white outline that doesn't turn black. So they're making it practically glow in the dark by doing this. It's freaky as hell. And the housekeepers seem to have just left without even rinsing the Blu-ray. Dumping that Blu-ray, blackened the cement all around it, and the body tissue, the fat and moisture that had soaked in from the body protected that part of the cement from getting blackened. So there's a white body outline surrounded by a blackish stain and then regular cement beyond that. People ask me, have I seen it? Have I touched it? Do I feel like I'm haunted? 
And the answer is no. After years of roaming the uninhabited parts of the building in the middle of the night, I don't, I'm not worried about any ghosts up there, but I know people who are. It's the one thing people think is haunted the most. I mean, dead body stain on the attic of a state mental institution, hell yes. When mental health uh, got into like the 60s and 70s, it was the era of deinstitutionalization and also a time when uh, there was a resentment against facilities like that. They uh, got new plans to make a brand new building and moved the patients and staff into this new building, and they completed the construction we moved in in 1993. So that left the big old Kirkbride building and about 150 acres of land up there that used to be the old asylum and farm. The Athens Lunatic Asylum was eventually closed in 1993. Today, a portion of the main building is used as classrooms and office space. It's largely known as the Ridges. However, the other half still stands, but largely abandoned. Any place that is locked away is associated with asylums, which are associated with this sort of torments of mentally ill people uh, being confined. It all comes together to give it a reputation. You know, students, I know that they go into the ridges. I mean, I tell people I don't want to know about it because I don't think it's, I think it's illegal, but I'm pretty sure that they all at some point try to go into the ridges or at least up there at night as on a dare or something. People that do it, you know, they have something to talk about for a couple months. Just down the hill and across the Hocking River, the legend of a haunted dorm still lurks on the Ohio University campus. So Wilson Hall was built in 65. The stories that I think are associated with Wilson Hall, one of them is, is a suicide, which is a very common story about college campuses because it is unfortunate that suicide is a leading cause of death among people in that age group. Um, and then the other story seem, that seems to be associated with, to me, with the Manson fears of cults uh, was that there were witches living there. And then I've heard the story, which puts the two together, that there was a witch there and the witch committed suicide and drew pentagrams and stuff on the walls with her blood. These stories come out of a sort of tumultuous and fear-filled time in Athens's history and Ohio University's history. So what do the current residents of Wilson Hall know about these rumors? Apparently, there's been a few deaths in there. And then people have heard about the fourth floor, especially like hearing things or like certain things like being out of place when they see it. And I mean, that's all I really knew about it at first. I have no idea, but I just heard it's haunted. Who told you that? Uh, older OU students. They just said it's haunted. I said I didn't want to hear about it. I walked away. <laughs> said it was built on top of like an insane asylum and like that two people like committed suicide or something in like the fourth floor. We have a friend that lives up there and he actually said he heard people running on like this roof, but that was at like 3 a.m. So there's there should be no one up there. Uh, I know there's like a lot of stories, but I'm pretty sure Somebody hung themselves and they did a demon ritual cursing the place, I'm pretty sure. Um, my aunt went here 40 years ago and that was the thing still here. She was like, oh, Wilson, the haunted dorm. And I was like, how do you even know about this? Yeah, when I said I lived there, like right after I got here and I didn't know when I came that it was this one. And then I'd say within the first week I had people telling me that it was haunted. So, so what's really inside Wilson Hall, room 428? It's a boiler room. It was converted into a boiler room. It was originally a dorm room, as I understand it, but it's now a boiler room. They moved the boiler in there. 
So if it was a room people were allowed in, pretty quickly people say nothing is happening in here. But if it's a room nobody's been in for 30 years, then you know you can say anything you want about it because nobody's been in there. I mean, people have said that living next to the boiler room, things happened. And, and, and they say that if you look into the wood grain, you see a face. But if you look into anything long enough, you'll see a face. That's just human nature. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, who is haunting it and why are they haunting it? It's not clear. Was it a witch? Well, sometimes it's that they unleashed some kind of a demon with their rituals. But, you know, everybody has a different answer about what it is. College students have just moved away from their parents' house. They're in a high-stress situation. Often they are experimenting with different things for the first time. And they're in a state of, of sort of rapid development that's also chaotic. And so these stories serve to kind of navigate the college experience, which for some people is very, um, you know, a, a big sort of shakeup. And so these stories are everywhere. Every college campus has haunting stories, inculcating this sort of values and norms into people who just got there. I mean, you need to relax. Don't take it. Don't take everything so seriously. You know, this person took things so seriously. Now they're haunting this dorm. So there's there's uh, there's kind of some basic social norms being encoded there to to not go in with a bad crowd and to not be too stressed out. And the easiest way to communicate them is with gruesome stories. So that explains the rumors behind Wilson Hall. But there's another rumor going around about the cemeteries that surround Athens. According to legend, if you connect the points of five cemeteries on a map, the resulting shape is a pentagram. Well, it's there's there's it is true. I mean, if you go to the Sims, Hanning, Cuckler, Higgins, and Zion cemeteries on a map, they're roughly in a circle. Any five points in a circle can be made to form a pentagram. Any five points that are roughly equidistant from each other in a circle can be made to form a pentagram. Technically, it's a pentagon, but if you want to draw lines from one to the other and to the other and to the other, you can make a pentagram. But there are also a dozen more cemeteries that aren't in that list that could be part of some other shape. So, yeah. I could draw you a pentagram around any city in the world based on cemeteries or something around it. But people have done that because they want to uh, explain the, the strange nature of Athens. I mean, uh, you know, settlers have been here since the 18th century. There's a lot of cemeteries. And any five cemeteries, if they're kind of far apart from each other, can be a pentagram. So, yeah. <laughs> so stories of the Ridges and Wilson Hall being haunted attracts ghost hunters and paranormal experts from across the world. But if you're coming to Athens during the Halloween season, you're most likely coming for one reason, the Halloween block party. If there's going to be a time when a place with this reputation has a party, it would be Halloween. Well, my name is Jonathan David Holmberg. I was a graduate of OU in 85. My history with the event began in 76 when I was an OU Belmont student and people we're getting ready to come down to Halloween. And I had not really heard much about Halloween in Athens at the time. And we were kind of separated. You weren't really an OU student if you went to the branch. You were kind of, you know, the stepson kind of thing. You know, oh, those guys. We hitchhiked down 75 for Springfest, a uh, folk festival. And I walked across campus, and I was 19 years old, and I thought, I, I'm in Nirvana. This is unfucking believable. People were smoking weed everywhere. The dead was playing. I mean, hippies were just 
sitting on the green. It's just like I imagined it, you know, growing up, because we were really nationally known as a school that partied, and it was known nationally for marijuana. We were like a place to go to get the, the really good weed. During the Vietnam War, OU was much more active than Kent State was. So Athens had that reputation of it's a wild town. So I transferred down in 77, 78, and that was my first real block party experience. And it was mostly OU students. Some people from Columbus would come in, and then it would be basically sidewalks would fill up, then people would spill into the street, and then it it would become sort of like a party, you know, until around midnight, one o'clock, and then they would literally come in with batons, and they just would encourage you very strongly to leave the street. And again, since it was a loosely based party, there was no entertainment. There's been no rules about Halloween. You just sort of go nuts. Uh, that was the way it used to be. And uh, now it kind of still is that way. In its beginnings, it was more of a trip fest. I mean, there were years when there probably wasn't as many people anywhere tripping as, as there were in Athens, Ohio for Halloween. We used to call it the Crazy Eye uh, Festival. The Halloween block party as an organized event began to take place with the support of their local newspaper, the Athens News. The A News kind of came forward. Bruce Mitchell and Guy Phillips, uh, they were kind of rich boys from Arlington who uh, bought this newspaper. They got behind Halloween in the early 80s and tried to convince the city that they should organize the thing and put a stage up. So the first two years that Halloween occurred as an organized event was in the parking lot that's owned by the A News. And since you had to raise money to do it, they were going to businesses, the same businesses that supported their paper as advertisers. And so they were having a hard time with that because people were like, you know, fuck you, you come in here, we already given you money for ads. You know, now you're coming in and asking for more money for an event that may not benefit our business because of, the, of its nature. It's a little rowdy. Uh, in those early days, it was extremely rowdy. So from 76 to 85, I had no connection to Halloween other than being fucked up uptown. But then I graduated from OU and felt I needed to get a real job. And that's when I started working for a friend of mine in a little head shop. And uh, the A News was in business with him. And they said, hey, Jonathan, you know, people know you in town. They like you because I was involved in music. Our band was really popular in college. So you go in and you be our fundraising director. So I took on that chore as the fundraising director in 88. And then the committee chairman moved to California, so I was asked to take over his role as the face of Halloween. Although there was other people that were equal to me in authority, they just weren't the face of Halloween. And that was by design. I said, look, they hate you. The city hates you guys. You, Bruce, and Guy, because they felt like they were the reason Halloween was going on. That was the big thing, was who's running this thing? Who's in charge? Is it Bruce? Is it Guy? Is it this Guy Jonathan? So I came forward and I said, I'm just going to hit, just make me the poster child for this event. And in those years, the, the 
early 90s, mid 90s, this thing was huge. I would have to sit through these meetings. It would be the mayor and the chief of police, fire chief, safety director, the code director. They would just come up with the same suggestions. The city's mantra every year was maybe it'll go away, maybe it'll go away. And then it became this thing at the meetings. If you'd stop doing this, I was the reason that Halloween was continued. If I would just quit doing it, it would stop. I think anybody with any intelligence could see that even if we didn't have stages anymore, people were going to show up. But the city would try to come up with these ideas on how to shut it down. They would never put a home football game during Halloween that weekend because they were afraid that the influx of all those additional people. Another year, the university put Parents Weekend. This will stop it. We'll put Parents Weekend on Halloween, and those parents will come down and they'll be horrified. We had parents drinking out in the crowd with their students, you know. Sarah Hendricker was the mayor during the wild years, before we sanctioned it, before it became what I would call a controlled environment. She would instruct the police, the chief of police, now you go out there and you arrest over 200 kids. Because if you get over 200 kids, you make national police reports. You know, police arrested over 240 kids this Halloween. And she thought that'll bring an end to it. We'll shame their parents. All arresting 200 people did was made people in Columbus and Cincinnati go, well, I want to go down there. It overwhelmed us. You have 30,000 people with one stage. And I'm on stage trying to make announcements and introduce bands and keep this thing moving. And the crowd would get so compact and so big, they would push the security wall back and back. And then it would be up against the stage. And so we just said, look, we're going to have to have two stages. Two stages was not a good idea for the city or the university because we chose to put the second stage right in front of a high university's gate. At the time, Dr. Glidden was the president of the high university. All I said to him was, you know, what, you're complaining about something that, that you have no authority to do so. Because they ran their mouths and because they made a big deal out of it, we had buses coming in from Cleveland and Columbus, Channel 10, Channel 3. You know, we made national news because we put a second lousy stage up. Because the president went on TV and made a stink about it, the press said, oh, this could be trouble. Let's, let's head down there. When the stages were at one end of Court Street to the other, it's four blocks. I would make the announcements on the one stage, and then I would work my way through the crowd down to the other stage, and I would stagger the times of the bands so I could be on to make announcements on both stages. That way I could judge the size of the crowd, I could judge the temperament of the crowd. But it became such, such a challenge to get from one end of town to the other. One year, it literally was picked up off the ground by the crowd. Those were the boob years. The reason I was being picked up by the crowd was that people had packed so tightly to get a look at these four or five women who are leaning out the window of their apartment on Court Street. The quote in the newspaper uh, by Chief Mayor, his quote was that we're, we're considering arresting women for nude behavior. They'd always put his quote about the nude behavior, and then they would put my quote right underneath it. I said, uh, personally speaking, I like breasts. 
every year without fail. Every year without fail. It makes the quotes. After nearly 30 years of running and advocating for the Halloween block party, Jonathan finally parted ways with the event. I'm telling you, you don't understand the stress that comes with the job, the weather. Nothing sucks more than being out all day in a drizzle on Halloween and having to be in charge of that. There's years the police are having meetings with me where they're saying, well, it's been on the internet that someone's going to shoot people in the crowd. I'm like, I don't want to know that shit. I'd rather just get shot. They would bring in cops in riot gear and move into the crowd, which just makes the crowd throw things. Someone threw a basketball off the top of a four-story building and it hit me right in the face. And all I remember is saying, everything going black. And they said, dude, somebody hit you in the face with a basketball. I said, well, that really sucks. That really sucks. I still have the basketball. It turned into a very reputable, at, at certain points, a very reputable event. One of the last years I ran Halloween, OU had a home football game on Halloween. First time in 30 years of me running Halloween. But not only did the university schedule a home game, but they called it the Battle of the Bricks. It was against Miami of Ohio. It coincided with the block party. And they advertised it as such. Here's the university after all these years finally taking accountability. So in that respect, I guess I should take pride in that, that I was part of something that made it a legitimate event. Being able to be a fucked up participant in the Halloween Bash as a student to being on stage saying, uh, hello, Halloween Athens, Ohio, and having that crowd, you know, respond is, it, it was a nice journey, I'll tell you that. Being somewhere and have people say to you, Athens, Halloween, I've heard it's just over the top. And I can say to them with pride, you're talking to the guy who's in charge of that. Now that Jonathan can reflect on his involvement with the event, we asked him why people were drawn to Athens for Halloween in the first place. I think the city wondered the same thing for years. What the fuck is it that brings everybody here? I had heard about OU because we'd heard so many great things about Athens. And Athens has long been associated with being haunted. And Halloween probably is a manifestation of that history. So now that you've heard some of the legends and lore of this Southeast Ohio town, you may be really asking yourself, is Athens haunted? I mean, after all, the most infamous and enduring ghost stories that Athens has to offer all seem to have a rational explanation. The seances performed by Jonathan Coons may have just been a special effects show. Even skeptics of his time had their suspicions. The haunted stain in the Athens Lunatic Asylum can be chalked up to clumsy custodial work. The hauntings of Wilson Hall may have been nothing more than the sounds of a boiler room. And the reason thousands of people choose to party on the streets of Athens every Halloween is not because of some demonic siren's call, but because OU students just really know how to party. Whether or not the haunting of Athens is real is something we cannot definitively answer one way or another. But that question begs to be answered with another question. Does it even matter? In a lot of ways, the truth to these stories does not matter as much as these stories themselves. They are part of a folklore, a tradition that says something about who we are and where we came from. 
Every town has their own legends, their own traditions that continue to be passed down to the next generation. It just so happens that the legends and folklore of Athens is best told during Halloween, around a campfire with a flashlight under your chin. It's an old, old city, an old university, 1804, the first university in Ohio. So the history goes way back. And I think that the Halloween is a pivotal point in that too, because Halloween's long associated with spirits and, and evil and, and just over the top craziness. All those things tie together to make this part of the state valuable in, in that lore. Athens is this old place and it is in Appalachia. Appalachia is known for people who brought here their stories of ghosts and haunts and witches from wherever they came from in Europe. And so you will find tons of Appalachian folklore. It's a rich folklore. So I think what we are is we are bringing that Appalachian tradition into the big tapestry of Ohio. From Westler Media, this has been Profiles. I'm Vince Tornero, president and executive producer here at Westler Media and host of this podcast. Thanks to Kevin Skubak, my producer, for making Profiles happen. We are the creators of this series. To Brian Collins, Sharon Hatfield, George Eberts, and Jonathan Holmberg, thank you for doing interviews with us. And a special thanks to Casey, who helped us get directions on campus when we got lost. Also, have to acknowledge the Athens Public Library for giving us a space to record. Sharon, she put a ton of work into her book, Enchanted Ground, The Spirit Room of Jonathan Coons. We think it deserves your attention. Additionally, George offers walking tours of the Athens Asylum through the Southeast Ohio History Center. Please consider supporting this organization by taking one of his tours. Links to both Sharon and George's work are in the episode notes. Finally, please give this podcast a five-star rating and share this episode and series with friends and family. We'd be ever so grateful. All right, that's it. I'm Vince Tornero. Thank you very much for listening to and sharing Profiles. On the next episode of Profiles, you've got Cincinnati's iconic restaurateur, Jeff Ruby. I was a loser in loving every minute of it. I wasn't doing anything. I didn't have any, any goals. He said, why do you want to go to Cincinnati? Well, I'm a Reds fan, and that's why I want to go. I never wanted to have the most steakhouses in the country. I wanted to have the best steakhouses in the country. All I want to do is get in fights. These guys had more fights, more calls of the police department there than ever before collectively. And when the cops get there and break it up, your manager's at the bottom of the fight. Here's the difference between you and me. You report the news. I create the news. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware. When your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise, and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.